Good morning, Willowburn. Good to see you all. Um, if you're fairly new here or you haven't come too often, you might be thinking, okay, this is a bit weird. This prayer and share thing's a bit uncomfortable. And why the heck do we have to sit through a hot morning listening to not one but two young guys waffling on? Sorry about that. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about this church is the genuine care that a lot of people here have for each other. And um, I was actually supposed to be bringing a message from our Revelation Do These Words series this morning. But um, on Monday, my wife's father passed away. Um, Sarah's dad died. And um, hearing about that, the, um, the elders said, look, you need to focus on family this week. Don't worry about bringing a sermon we'll to a sharing Sunday. But then uh, a few days later, when I was talking to Ben about what he was going to you know, bring, because he offered to bring his message about loneliness, I said, oh man, that's real cool. I've, been, I've had this burning desire to talk about hope on my heart for quite some time. And he said, that's really cool. Loneliness and hope kind of goes together. Um, let's do it. And so that's why you're having to put up with it. Um, let me pray and I'll get straight into it. Uh, dear Lord and Holy Father, thanks so much for today. Thanks for a hot day because it teaches us to appreciate the cool days and all the good things that you've given us here in the West where we can just get cool pretty easily. We pray for all those people that don't have easy access to those things. But um, as the day draws on and as it gets warmer and harder to concentrate, I pray, Father, that your spirit would speak through me as you've spoken through Ben, and that uh, what is said would only be things coming from you to the hearts of your people. Amen. Okay, so starting off with a question. If you've heard me speak at all, you know I like interaction. So I'm going to be asking a few questions throughout, and they're not rhetorical. I want answers. And I won't shame you or say it's a bad answer, because there aren't any bad answers. So how many funerals have you been to? Too many? Too many? It seems to be a consensus. Too many. Okay, I've actually been to about eight. Um, and Sarah's father on Friday was only the third one in Toowoomba. So people die less here than they do in Rocky, where I'm from. Or maybe I was there longer, I don't know. Anyway, um, so next question. When you go to a funeral, what would you say is one of the emotions that is fairly prevailing? Like people sort of have a bit of a group emotion thing going on. Obviously, one is grief. What else have you observed at a funeral? Regret. Regret. Mm-hmm. What else? Love. Love, yep. Gratefulness. Gratefulness, yeah, thankfulness. What else? Appreciation. Separation. Separation, loss, yep. Sorrow, appreciation. I know Camille said that. What about joy? Have you ever experienced joy at a funeral? Some, yes. Me too. In fact, the very first funeral I went to in Toowoomba was an old lady from my church back in Rocky who had previously gone to church here in Toowoomba and she wanted, well, her husband wanted her to be buried among her oldest friends here in Toowoomba. Um, that lady was Esther Smith and uh, her funeral was absolutely amazing. Um, just packed chapel at the Burstow's funeral home and um, yeah, just a real sense of joy and people getting back together and oh, remember this, remember that, oh, look forward to seeing her again, all this kind of thing. It was just fantastic. Felt more like being at a wedding than a funeral. There was so much joy around. So that was really cool. The next funeral we went to at Burstow's was actually Sarah's Nana. And she was also a Christian lady who'd loved God with all her heart. And she came from um, a not-so-Christian family, but she'd made a lot of Christian connections. And again, there was a real sense of joy. On Friday, when we farewelled Sarah's father, there was no sense of joy. There wasn't even much sense of hope. There were a lot of nice things said, but... There wasn't any real hope that anyone would ever see him again or no one really knew for sure where he'd gone or what to say. There's been a lot of conflict in the family due to some choices that he and others have made. And so 
most people were trying very hard not to offend anyone so they could get out of there as quickly as possible. It wasn't fun. So, um, I wanted to talk, one thing that really struck me about that funeral was just the total lack of hope. Nobody really believed they were going to see Peter again and no one really had any idea what had really happened to him because they all mostly were unbelievers. So we just felt very saddened by this. And that sort of struck a chord with me because right through last year, I learned about hope. And I didn't know, I don't know whether you know it or not, there's actually a very different sense in the human way of defining hope than there is in the biblical and divine way of looking at hope. And that's what I want to look at today. I have two main points. The first point is that hope in the Bible, biblical hope, is very different to human hope. It appears in a very different way and it does very different things. My second point is that biblical hope inspires action. Hopefully they're simple enough to remember. Biblical hope is not the same as human hope and biblical hope inspires action. So think about how you might generally hear people say they hope for something, like how people usually word, use the word hope. I hope I get this new job. I hope I pass this exam. I hope this heat wave ends soon. Things like that. Um, what, about, what is there about those statements? Like, can tell me what you observe about those statements. Wishful thinking, exactly. No confidence that it's actually going to happen. Very much wishful thinking, a real sense of doubt in the outcome. Um, the Bible, however, presents hope very differently. Hope is almost always a confident expectation. There's a sense of acting as if a future reality is going to come to pass, and so you act accordingly. There's no room for doubt in the biblical definition of hope. I rarely hear a Christian say something like, I hope God provides for this need I have, or I hope Jesus doesn't forget to come back for us someday. Because we all accept that God will provide for us and Jesus is coming back. Those are realities that we believe in. And so we don't say silly things about hoping for them to happen because we know they're going to happen at some point. That's the kind of confident expectation that is present whenever the Bible references the idea of hope. So don't take my word for it. Go to the Bible, of course. Um, in the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew word that's translated um, hope in our language, and it's the word batah. I don't know if I said that right, but um, it and all of its derivatives basically are translated hope because the Hebrew idea of confidence, security, even being totally unburdened by care about something is what's being referenced in that word batah. So it appears multiple times in the Old Testament, and I just want to look at a couple of cases to show this sense of confident expectation. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Job chapter 6, and start in verse 14. I'm going to read it, but I'll give you a second to get there if you want to follow along. So Job, chapter 6, verses 14 to 21. And it helps to pay a lot of attention here because um, what I'm talking about can seem to be a little bit lost at first reading, but it is there. So Job, chapter 6, verse 14. <clears throat> Anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that stop flowing in the dry season and in the heat vanish from their channels. Caravans turn aside from their roots. They go off to, into the wasteland and perish. The caravans of Timah look for water. The traveling merchants of Sheba look in hope. They are distressed because they had been confident. They arrive there only to be disappointed. Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. So in that passage, Job is speaking to his friends and he uses this illustration of these streams which swell up when the ice melts 
and run throughout the land, watering everything. But then in the dry season, they vanish. They stop flowing, they disappear, and the merchants and caravans that depend on them go looking for them in hope. As he says there, they are distressed because they had been confident. They confidently hoped the streams would be there, providing the water they need. And they arrive only to be disappointed. And then he compares his friends to those. He says, you also have proved to be of no help. So they're looking in hope in Bata for these streams of water, and they're distressed when they don't find them. The word Batar conveys their confidence that they would find water, but they were disappointed. I know it's somewhat of a sad example, but it very clearly illustrates what the word Batar is trying to say, that hope is underwritten by a confident expectation in a reality. Okay? So it's not a wishful thinking. I hope the water's still out there. It might have become that eventually because they kept drying up on them, but the point was they were confident they should be there, and then they were very disappointed when they weren't. Okay, so a much more positive example. Turn over to Psalms, chapter 16. Uh, again, I'm going to read through, it's a short chapter, and I'm going to read the whole thing. This is a very positive psalm. I like it a lot because I'm a little bit cynical by nature, and it sometimes helps to cheer me up. So, um, Charm, Psalms, chapter 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my God. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, these are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Fairly uplifting psalm. And as we all know, it sort of um, alludes to the coming of Jesus, talking about not abandoning me to the realm of the dead and not letting your faith one see decay. But notice how confidently David expresses his feelings in this passage. He uses phrases like, surely I have a delightful inheritance. I can't say that. Well, not worldly-wise, anyway. My dad only has debts. Um, <laughs> he says, I will not be shaken with you at my right hand, in verse 6. And in verse 8, you will fill me with joy in your presence. He is confident that these things are a reality. They are going to happen. There's no wishful thinking. There is simply no room for doubt in his way of thinking. So that's in the Old Testament, and we find a similar confidence in the New Testament. Translating mostly from Greek, we find the Greek words elpis or elpizo are rendered as our word hope. One of the best examples of this is in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, the famous hall of faith. Once again, though, Paul talks about faith and hope as if it were intertwined, similar to the very... I guess the very famous passage we all know now, these three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Those are often called the, uh, the three virtues of the Christian faith. And yes, love is the greatest, but the other two are important as well. So there, Paul talks about faith, hope, and love as if they're intertwined, as if they feed into each other. And here in Hebrews chapter 11, he does the same thing. So if you go to Hebrews 11 and follow me, I'm only going to read one verse this time. Read verse 1. In fact... Could I get somebody else to read it? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the 
Thank you. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. It's a confidence. <clears throat> Paul literally defines faith here as the confidence in God. He's planted his faith or his belief firmly on this hope, this confident expectation in the unchangeable character of God and his perfect track record of keeping his promises. One more passage. Romans chapter 5. Someone go there for me. <clears throat> I will read it because recording. But if you want to follow along, Romans chapter 5, just the first five verses. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. One of my favourite passages about hope because it very clearly defines what it's about, how it's built up in us through the whole perseverance, character, etc. Um, and it says, hope does not put us to shame. If you hope in the things of God, you can have total confidence that you won't be put to shame. They will come to pass. He says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Do you hope that God has glory? In the worldly way of thinking, in the human wishful thinking, you know, I kind of hope God's all he says he is, because if not, we're screwed. <laughs> okay, maybe you might think that at some lonely points that Ben was describing earlier. But um, this hope that Paul is describing, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. It's a confident expectation. God is who he says he is. He is going to reveal his glory. He only uses the word that we translate as hope because the glory of God is not yet fully revealed. It hasn't quite come to pass, but he's supremely confident it's real. So suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. This hope, or confident expectation of God, to be and do all he's promised, can get you through any loneliness. It can get you through any family trauma. It's how believers in Aleppo, our brothers and sisters, can watch their kids have their fingers cut off before they're beheaded or crucified. Because they know... They have a confident expectation that God is who he said he is and he's coming back for them. He's going to make it right. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's not an empty cliche to console those who are hurting. It's the simple, unshakable confidence that God is, was, and forever will be. He's never broken a promise yet. So I want to wrap up this first point with a question. What do you place your hope in? At your funeral, what's going to be the pervading feeling? Is there going to be a hope that we're going to get to see this guy again? Or is it just going to be kind of hope he's in a good place? What sort of hope will define your life? Confident reality? An expectation of the coming of God and his glory? Or just wishful thinking that the good things will come your way? So that's the first point. Second point, I'll get to that really quickly. I just want to say Sarah's dad unfortunately lived without that hope in God. Obviously, we can't know his heart. Maybe he changed in his dying moments. But throughout his life, his decision to reject God affected his decisions, his relationships, and the way he treated people. Ben talked about sometimes we push people away. We repel people through our actions or our decisions or our words. Sarah's dad made a bit of an art of that, unfortunately. So um, as we farewelled him on Friday, we knew it was most likely for the last time. Maybe we're wrong and we'll meet him in heaven. That would be fantastic. But... Um, he held no hope of glory while he lived. So we think that he died the same way. 
And that's the segue to my second point. Biblical hope leads us to action. What we have our hope in influences how we behave. Wishful thinking rarely inspires any real effort, especially if there's going to be hardship or suffering involved. But confident expectation of a future reality will lead to choices and actions that reflect that reality. Now, really quickly, for the sake of time, I know I speak fast sometimes, but hopefully you can keep up. I'm just going to run through a bunch of verses that show how hope leads to action. Just to reinforce my second point, is actually biblical. Um, if you want to study them more for yourself later, you can get them off me, or just do a word search on hope. You'll get lots of them. But that was my second point. Biblical hope leads to action. It inspires how you think, how you feel, what choices you make, and what you do. So, from the Old Testament, just three. From Psalms. Be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Some versions say hope in the Lord. That's Psalm 31, 24. But I will hope continually and praise you yet more and more. Psalm 71, verse 4. David saying, I will hope continually. Proverbs 23. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. This is all Old Testament guys looking forward to the coming of Jesus. So, in some sense, they had less things to base their hope on than we do, since Jesus has been revealed. Now, New Testament... Romans 8, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Does that say that it's wishful thinking? No, actually. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? We are hoping, confidently expecting, a future reality, which isn't here yet. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, Romans 12, 12. To see how it's leading to action, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Get to the McIntyre shed on, Sunday, on Friday morning. Me too. <laughs> but in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a question, or sorry, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3.15. 2 Corinthians 3.12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Do you go through your Christian life with boldness? Your hope is in glory. Your king is coming back. 1 John 3, 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If your hope is in God, you want to be like him. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Romans 15, 4. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 13. And finally, Hebrews 6, 18, 19. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, Hebrews 6.18. So I know I moved those really quickly, but hopefully you saw the theme. Hope leads to action. Yes, you picked up on the pun. Good. I could go on and on all day. But I'm sure we want to get out of here and get cool. Um, I'm sure you get the point as well. Biblical hope leads to action. A confident expectation is lived out. It's reflected in our words, choices, and deeds. So let me end this message with another question. Actually, not quite ending, but I do want to ask another question. Um, how are you living out the hope within you? What sort of hope are you reflecting? How do your words, choices, and actions reflect the hope inside you? And what does that look like to people observing? So, <clears throat> nearly finished, just a little personal story. I learned about the difference between these two kinds of hope, the human wishful thinking, the biblical 
expectation last year. As you know, our little daughter has Down syndrome and she needed a surgery. Um, not this one, the other one. Um, <laughs> she needed surgery to correct something inside her right after she was born, which meant we need to go to Brisbane, stay there for a month, etc., etc. Most of you know the story. Um, I prayed really hard last year for some things to work out the way I wanted them to. Selfish prayers, prayers of convenience. Lord, don't let her have Down syndrome. I don't want to deal with that. Lord, don't let us have to go to Brisbane. Don't let her have anything wrong with her. I don't want that. I don't want to deal with that. Very selfish prayers of convenience. Not reflecting a hope of confidence in God to provide, to love, to care, to always be there for us. And God, in his wisdom, said no to all of those selfish prayers. He forced me to remember that my hope has to lie in his character, his promises, and his ultimate plan, which is far beyond my understanding. I need to act and pray and choose and live out of that hope. Not my own wishful thinking. So this affects how I look at the book of Revelation, which our main preaching series is going through. Revelation's a wonderful book. And a lot of people have done a lot of study and looked into how it can be interpreted, what it means for us. Is it coming true now or in the future? I see it much more so as a beacon of hope. It's a glimpse of a future reality. King Jesus is coming back. The return of the king! I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. Sorry. <laughs> Even if we don't understand all the details of the revelation, we can take hope, confident expectation. The king is coming back. He's on our side, and if he's for us, who can be against us? Amen. So, King Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you that we can be here. Thank you we can celebrate you. Thank you we can learn a little more about you. Thank you for the heat, which teaches us to be patient and to suffer and produce perseverance and character. Lord, as we go down to communion... We remember that this too is an expression of hope. We have a confident expectation that you are coming back, that right now you're interceding for us before the throne of God, that your Holy Spirit dwells within us, that you haven't forgotten us, that you're right here with us today and tomorrow and throughout the week, throughout the year, until you come back. Lord Jesus, help us now as we go to communion. Help us remember what you've done, but also to look forward with confident expectation of that day when everything will be made right. And you, the true king, will reign forever. Amen. So now, um, feel free to go to communion. At Willowburn, we just um, take some bread, take some juice. Eat the bread at your leisure. Um, do your business with God. And then hold the cup and we'll all drink together. God bless you.